Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Greetings, fellow time travellers. As always, it's lovely to have you with me for this journey through time and space. Before we start on today's episode, a big thank you to everyone who supports the podcast series by signing up to my patreon.com site it's that finance that makes everything else possible and keeps the podcasts free as they always have been so if you remember thank you if you haven't done so yet and you'd like to become part of the family go to patreon.com look me up part with some cash you can join monthly or by the year and it's cheaper if you do it by the year and you get access to everything then the question and answers the podcasts and podcasts the competitions and access to each other. There's a shared attraction to history and all things historical and archaeological, so come and join the family. That's the advert over. Now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The tiger and his army are in India and on the prowl. Standing in their way are 100,000 well-trained warriors and 1,000 war elephants, armoured, magnificent and ready. The attackers are a smaller force, but they're armed with a deadly secret weapon never before used on the Indian subcontinent. As the larger army advances, cannon are uncovered and open fire. The effect is dramatic and deadly, and a cornerstone of the Islamic Mughal Empire is laid. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In last week's episode we travelled with you to England in the 1530s to meet the country's most famous king, Henry VIII. Where are we this week? Hi Paul. This week we're shifting continents altogether, leaving Europe behind and heading to Asia specifically to the Indian subcontinent, as a cannon blast rings out in battle for the very first time in this incredible, unforgettable part of the world. We're outside the city of Panipat in Haryana, some 60 miles north of Delhi. It's the year 1526, and the army led by Ibrahim Lodi, Sultan of Delhi, is going up against the forces of Babur, the tiger. This one... Uh, I, I realised when I was l- looking back at it and you know preparing to talk about it this morning, there was something not niggling at me, but there was something I thought was uh, glaringly obvious that I was missing. And then, not long before you came on the, online today, I realised what it was. We're in we're in India, 
Um, and this story as it unfolds is quite um, it's quite the uh, intoxicating cloud of mysteriousness and it reaches back and forth across long periods of history and I realised what it was that I'd been missing was it, it says something about the subcontinent itself it's almost it's appropriate really that when I, whenever I look into the, the stories that are on the subcontinent they're always beguiling and mystifying and quite uh, confusing but the, that is the way that the subcontinent has been for incomers, for strangers to the place, for thousands of years. It, it does that to, to, to people. The subcontinent, I, I don't even want to call it India sometimes, you know, because that's, that, that, that was something that was applied to the place really from the outside. I don't, I don't think the subcontinent saw itself as India until, I don't know, the time of the British Empire, really. It was almost something uh, foreign that imposed upon it as well. So I always think about just that Indian elephant triangle of land that hangs down into the ocean uh, without really applying a name to it. And, but the, the fact is, as it seems to me, that down through the centuries and down through the millennia, incomers tended to get swallowed by it, absorbed People came in from the outside with intentions and ambitions and ideas about what they were going to do because they knew that there was great stuff there. There was wealth and there were spice and there was pepper and there was whatever. There were things to be had. So all sorts of different people came in at it from, from the outside and kind of got beguiled. It makes me think of in Homer's Odyssey, there's a chapter where the ship gets blown off course. Odysseus is, is coming back from the Trojan War and he's trying to get back to his, his homeland and his kingdom and his wife and son, but it, it takes forever because they, they have one sort of, you know, adventure after another. It takes them 10 years or something to get back. That's why Odysseus's journey home becomes Odyssey, which is, well, you know what an Odyssey is. It's, you know, it's a long and complicated journey. Well, one of the adventures is they get blown off course and they end up on the island of the Lotus Eaters, and the, the people of the island give them this f food, the, the, the lotus. And the, the crew, Odysseus's crew, eat this stuff and suddenly they, they lose all track of time. They forget why they were there. They, they forget what they're supposed to be doing. No one wants to go anywhere. They all just want to hang out with the lotus eaters eating the stuff that makes them forget what they were doing. And it, that's what that's what the subcontinent makes me think of. It's you know, people come in with all these grand plans and ideas, and it has that effect on people. And so, mostly people coming in from the outside were coming in through the, the northwest frontier because India was protected by mountain ranges like Himalaya and jungle and all, all sorts of geographical obstacles. So there's really only one way in for the longest time, and it was the, it was the northwest frontier. And so if you imagine this kind of steady procession of people coming in through the northwest frontier and almost just being turned into something else by the place. And this is where it this is where I said it spreads out over time. You kinda you you've inevitably got to keep looking back at what went before in, in that part of the world. And so if you go back to say the third century BC, all the way back there, I mean what what we're really talking about is an event. We'll get to it. it, it it's an event, a moment in the 16th century AD 
but you go all the way back. You have to re- you have to remember what happened in this part of the world. So in the in the third century BC, you've got Chandragupta, who we've already spoken about, and his descendant Ashoka, uh, and the the establishment of the Mauryan Empire, okay, which was a, an expansive big idea, a highfalutin concept, but it didn't outlive. Ashoka. It came to a sort of a high point under him. So that that was one of these things that started in the subcontinent and began to take shape and then just some sort of lassitude or other gravity just pulled it down and stopped it. So that, that just went away again. After the Mauryan Empire, a people called the Kushanas came in from basically from on the borderland with China. But they came in, another group of people that were sort of drawn irresistibly into the subcontinent. And the Kushanas, amongst other things, they were interested in the Buddha. The teachings of the Buddha were well established by that point. And they made art of the Buddha and they made a god of Buddha in the process. Buddha was the enlightened one. He he didn't style himself as something to be worshipped at all. But that's gradually what became of him under the Kushanas and others. So the, the Kushanas, they come and go, there's another little flowering of something. Then after them, there's Persians come in. One Persian king after another comes into the subcontinent looking to make it his own and add it to the empire. They're always coming in from the north, but they they don't really ever penetrate. They certainly don't penetrate to the far south. The Deccan Plateau is in the middle of the subcontinent. It's higher ground. And very few of the incomers ever get beyond it, ever get across the Deccan Plateau. India is is really about Hinduism and we'll get to that as well, the unifying presence in the subcontinent has been the way of life, which is Hindu. And we we maybe think of Hindu as like a religion, but it's it's much more than that. To be Hindu or, or Hinduism is really, it's an entire approach to what it is to be human and alive. And so if there is something unchanging and, and permanent in any sense, it, it seems to me that it's Hinduism. There's always people wanting to trade. There's always people coming in. So there's there's trade between the subcontinent and Egypt, okay? The high days of Egypt, there's trade going on. Then there's later there's trade with the Hellenistic world, which is to say the people that we would think of as Greeks. Then the Romans, that ancient classical world, they were drawn in. I mean, there's a school of thought that says that the Roman Empire bankrupted itself in the end because it kept on buying pepper from India. They were so addicted to the luxury of the cuisine that was made possible by pepper. India got all their gold. They just kept on buying pepper, and it, it sort of destabilised the, the economy of the Roman Empire. By now, let's say we're at the 4th century AD, you've got the Gupta civilization. It starts under another Chandragupta. We've already encountered a Chandragupta, but you know, come forward several centuries to, say, 320 AD, and you've got another Chandragupta. And this is the establishment of what Indiologists call the Gupta civilization. I mentioned Hinduism. You see what I mean about trying to talk about this? You, you end up drifting backwards and forwards in time. and There's all these other connections that seem to suggest themselves. Something else that's a unifying presence or a unifying force is the language of Sanskrit. And from north to south in the subcontinent, there was the Sanskrit language. And it had a, an effect that mattered. I mean, the great works of storytelling, which are the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, they were ancient oral traditions, but they were given the brightest polish 
you know, the most, the, the lasting gloss by the cadences and the rhythms of the Sanskrit language. So this is in the mix as well. So the centuries are passing and at, at all times, from beginning to end, there's Hinduism and there's Buddhism. I mean, Buddhism has been described, there's a, an English philosopher called Alan Watts who said that Buddhism is Hinduism stripped for transport. It's a version, it comes out of Hinduism and it, and it was the version of Hinduism that sort of went elsewhere in the world. You've got Sanskrit, you've got Hinduism, you've got Buddhism and these things are mattering much more than any empire or any individual. No one individual across a lifespan or, or not even an empire made of kings and sons and kings and sons makes the impact. Nothing really touches the significance of Hinduism and Buddhism and the, and the Sanskrit language. You've got all the, the stuff going on that beguiled the incomers. You know, you've got animal sacrifice. You've got different groups worshipping different idols. Always and undeniably, there's variations on oppression of women. You know, women get the sticky end of the lollipop a lot of the time. There's the custom, the tradition of sati, which so appalled the British, which was where um, a, a widow was expected to throw herself onto the funeral pyre of her dead husband, rather than be any kind of draining in the society. She was just supposed to put an end to herself. Is that brutality? Is it cruelty? It certainly sounds like it. And, and it's, it's running alongside ascetics who are coming up with all sorts of profound philosophical thought about the nature of reality. You know, it's out of the subcontinent that we get the idea of samsara, which is the, the sort of hamster wheel of life and death, one reincarnation after another, that humans are, are incapable of escaping unless, through the teachings of the Buddha, they reach nirvana, which is enlightenment, which is actually, it means to awaken. You know, talk, talk about woke. Buddhism and Buddha provided the original waking up to enlightenment. The best sort of translation of nirvana is phew, or an exhalation. It's like the relief. I don't have to do that anymore. That's what nirvana is. It's getting off of the, the hamster wheel of samsara. And to make the place even more fascinating than it already is, it's Hinduism that contemplates timescales that are relating to the cosmos, that are familiar to our kind of Big Bang Theory understanding of the age of the cosmos. The Hindu timescales are unimaginable. The count of years runs to billions and trillions. It's actually very hard to settle on any given set of numbers. It varies hugely depending on from what perspective you look at Hinduism. There's the day of Brahma. Brahma is a, a god and a day of Brahma is measured as one kalpa, K-A-L-P-A. -A. And by some estimates it's 4.3 billion years long. Right, so a 12-hour period a daylight day of Brahma is 4.3 billion years, okay? And it's followed by a night of 12 hours, which is called a pralya, which is another 4.3 billion years. So it becomes, it becomes mind-bending. A month of Brahma is 259 billion years. Brahma lives for 100 years. Now that comes to 311 trillion years. In the, in the lifetime of, of, of the Brahma. But to make it even more impossible, in the great ocean of eternity, 
at any given moment, there are innumerable, uncountable Brahmas kind of rising up from the depths of the deep ocean like bubbles and then popping on the surface. They are in uncountable procession up from the, the, great, the great ocean of eternity. And each of them has a lifetime of, you know, 311 trillion years. So Carl Sagan, he of Cosmos and all of that, he observed that of all the world's religions, only Hinduism had, for, in, by whatever means, come to conceive of timescales that chime with our idea of Big Bang. It was the only one that imagined the great void of eternity in a way that, that chimes in any sense with, with our notion of the, of the Big Bang theory and the, you know, the, the universe being 14 billion years old and all of the rest of it. Talk about the lotus eaters and the confusion of the place. One of the ways in which Hinduism makes sense of reality, there's this notion of Maya, M-A-Y-A, and it means all sorts of different things. It means illusion, uh, it means magic, it also is a way of understanding reality as a play, like a drama. That the reality that we experience, it's not that it's not real, it's that it's unfolding in the way that a play does. The idea of Maya is that God gets bored with being God. You know, knowing everything. B being omniscient is, is a drag. It's like, where's the fun in that? You know everything before it happens. So to get away from his own omniscience, God plays hide-and-seek with himself, which manifests in him going to sleep for millions of years at a time. And during that time when he's asleep, he dreams that he is all of us. You, me, every, all the dogs, all the cats, every blade of grass, every tree, everything is God hiding from himself by letting this drama unfold which is what we experience, right? So, essentially, we are all God. We are all little scintillas of God. And that, that goes on. Happy, sad, tragedy, disasters. All of it runs. And then he wakes up and thinks, wow, what an adventure that was. And he stays awake for some millions of years until he gets fed up being God again and goes to sleep and hides from himself again. Now, how do you... This is, this is what I mean about how unimaginably, inconceivably complex the world of the subcontinent is. And no wonder when people came in from outside and encountered that, they often got lost and swallowed up. So, I mean, back to matters more prosaic. By the 8th century AD, there's Islam. Islam has come in to India, it, it arrives on the west coast and then penetrates and percolates through. By the 11th century there are Turkic peoples in the Punjab, so people that are coming out of that territory that we would know as Turkey. Islam coexists with Hinduism and Buddhism. The arrival of Islam does not push away Hinduism and Buddhism. There was an Islamic empire in the valley of the Ganges. Christianity is there too. Christianity arrived on the west coast of the subcontinent in the first century AD. You know, not long after the time of Christ himself, Christianity arrived in, in India and it, it comes and it stays. At the end of the 14th century, Timur, remember Timur the Lame, the one that, that has the battle with Bajazet II at Ankara in 1402. 
and he captures badges at the second and puts them in a cage with his dogs. Remember that story? Well, that Timur conquered Delhi, end of the 14th century. And this is where we get to the, to the point of t- <laughs> today's story of the world, really. In 1483, okay, someone descended from both Timur and Genghis Khan, who we've already also encountered. A descendant of both Timur and Genghis Khan is born in Uzbekistan in 1483. His name is Zahir Uddin Muhammad, but he was nicknamed Babur and known as Babur for the whole of his life, which means the tiger. Born 1483, in 1494 he succeeded, replaced his father. And three years after that, when he was just 14, just 14 years old, he leads an army that conquers the oasis city of Samarkand. Okay, talk about romantic. He didn't hold it or control it for long, but having achieved that at such a young age, secured his reputation thereafter. He had one of those roller coaster careers of an ambitious, thrusting individual. Highs and lows, success and failure. When he was failing and on the, on the downslope, he would be exiled, he would be driven off and driven away. At the moment that matters to us, you know, for this week's story of the world, he was in Kabul, in Afghanistan, and he was biding his time there when enemies of the Sultan of Delhi, okay, back in India, the Sultan of Delhi, who's called Ibrahim Lodi, has enemies. They've all got enemies, and these enemies appeal to Babur in Kabul to come and battle with Lodi. Come and replace him. Knock him off his perch. It's significant. It's important to know that these particular enemies of Ibrahim Lodi were people with roots, ties to Afghanistan. They're of Afghan descent. And so going back to Kabul and looking for Babur makes sense. Tempted by the opportunity, Babur brings an, an army to the city of Panipat in Harayana. Hold on to the the immensity of the story of India. This is really what matters. It's a cosmos all on its own, and all we're talking about here are the bright occasional flashes of individual stars in that vastness of India. So Babur brings an army to the city of Panipat in Haryana, about 60 miles north of Delhi. It's no small force. It's 25,000 strong, perhaps. It's, it's in the main comprised of men on horseback, cavalry. But when he arrives at Panipat, it's to confront an army of maybe 100,000, led by Ibrahim Lodi. And at the core of this 100,000 strong force are a 1,000 war elephants. Imagine. You know that scene in The Lord of the Rings, you know, when, the, when the, these towering beasts come out? Well, there's a 1,000 war elephants, which, like the, I don't know, I suppose like the heavy cavalry, the heavy horse of the, of the English army for the longest time, nothing could stand in front of them. You know, this was an, this was an incredible deterrent. But nonetheless, this is what Babur comes to confront. He's a very capable tactical thinker. He anchors one flank of his force against the wall of the city, against a part of the wall of the city, and then he strings out a relatively narrow front. And unbeknownst, unbeknownst to Lodi and the army that's coming to confront him, behind a screen of wagons that are all fixed together with ropes, he's brought heavy artillery. Babur has cannon. He has acquired cannon. Now these have never before been used in battle in India, anywhere. This is a complete unknown. So 
Lodi advances towards this fairly nice. So he's got his force fairly con- concentrated because Babur's army is on quite a narrow front. And when they come within range, for the first time, heavy cannon open fire on the Indian plain. And it's chaos, right? The elephants, for a start, have never experienced anything like this. The, th- the thunderous noise, and they turn and stampede. So they go clattering back through their own force. Lodi, the commander of this home force, he turns and runs as well. And he's, he, he, well, eventually he's among something like 20,000 dead. Lodi is captured and beheaded for his trouble. And Babur is the victor. Panipat, the Battle of Panipat, the first Battle of Panipat, you couldn't really say that it established a kingdom, far less an empire, but it was a cornerstone. It was a foothold for Babur. And what was built upon that cornerstone was something else, something new, and it's the Mughal Empire. Everyone's heard of the Mughal Empire. Mughal is a corruption of Mongol. It's another way of saying the word Mongol, because as previously mentioned, Babur was descended from Genghis Khan, or at least he claimed to be. So Rather than Mongol Empire, it's Mughal Empire. After Panipat, he just has to keep on fighting. There are always rivals, always under pressure, particularly by the Hindu Rajput princes. So he has to fight for the rest of his life. He dies aged 47 in 1530. He's succeeded, Babur is succeeded by his 22-year-old son Humayun. And like his father, Humayun has to fight constantly. After Humayun comes Akbar. Akbar the Great. We will learn more about Akbar the Great in the weeks and months ahead. But under Akbar the Great, the Mughal Empire reaches its brightest flowering. It reaches its, its, its greatest extent. And all of it comes from Babur, the tiger. And when he died, he was buried once and then they moved him uh, because they were finally fulfilling his original wish. So eventually he lay at rest back in Kabul, in a tomb open to the sky. But it is from Babur that we get the Mughal Empire that up until the arrival of the British was to have the greatest impact on the subcontinent. Conquistadors sweep into the Americas seeking gold and other riches. Along the way they find a treasure more valuable than all the rest with the power to change the world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios, and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.